morning. Let's see, is that coming? There we go. Well, welcome to Restoration for a New Generation Part 2. Show show of hands for anybody who was here yesterday. Awesome, most of the crew, and and so probably a show of hands if this is is your your first time into this kind of class. Awesome, I'm so glad that you're here as well. Well, uh, I'd, uh, I'd love to kind of give a little bit of a recap of what we talked about yesterday before we get into part two. Uh, let's see, I'm realizing that, that um, uh, for uh, our awesome tech team, uh, should I be using a clicker or am I just going to fire those? Um, awesome. Hey, can we can we thank this incredible tech team all the ways they're serving all throughout the week? Thank you so much. So uh, so I shared uh, shared just a little bit yesterday about some of the uh, the impetus for this class, which uh, which for me was very personal because I'm thinking about my six year old and my three year old and what it's going to mean to to have them uh, be able to say later they grew up uh, in the Church of Christ. They grew up in the restoration movement, and what would that mean for them? And so part of what we talked about yesterday was that that would be tied to a story that would be handed down, that that would take precedence because a, ch- a shared story helps, helps communicate who you are but also what you believe as, as opposed to sometimes what can often happen is that we lose the story and what we hand down are just the set of talking points for why we are the way we are, uh, or, or maybe the maybe to, to send a hand down a set of values, and uh, and so we talked about kind of four layers of story, uh, faith stories that could be handed down. That there's a personal story, uh, maybe up your family tree, maybe how you actually came to faith in Christ. That uh, people people around you to whom you are maybe biological or spiritual mothers or fathers or big brothers or sisters in the faith. That that that's worth sharing with the next generation. Uh, but not only that, there's congregational stories. Uh, you know, the way that the church plant will say, we started in a little living room and then, you know, we, we've, we've grown to where we are now. Uh, but everybody's part of a, a story at their local, uh, local body of Christ. Uh, there is uh, the tribal story or the denominational story. And this is where we spent most of our time and where we'll spend some more time today uh, to, to understand what is this movement that we're a part of and, and, and what is the story that we will hand the next generation. And obviously there's the global story, the story that is most important, and that is discipling uh, the next generation into the way of Jesus, giving them the story of God and his people, his covenant, hesed love, his kingdom breaking into the earth. Now, as we talked about that, we, we said there's another name for the restoration movement, and I'm imagining now everybody would be able to shout that out loud for me. The Stone Campbell movement. It's, uh, it's early, so we're not going to shout that out, but we will speak it out to me at a very polite tone. So uh, <laughs> I'm teasing. So we talked about these two uh, when we talked about and told some of the story of uh, the beginning of the restoration movement. Alexander Campbell, who's who's coming more from from the the northeast and Barton W. Stone, who's a Presbyterian minister in Kentucky and and that both of them were beginning to aim at the same thing and forged in the fires of revivals that were happening around the United States. When they met in the 1820s, there was this moment, this 
you know, we're going to look past our differences and we are going instead to choose unity, to choose renewal uh, for the sake of God's kingdom breaking into the earth. And these two men, we said, overlooked a lot of differences. Stone lived in poverty. Campbell died a wealthy man. Stone wasn't an academic. Campbell founded his own university. Stone operated with charismatic passion. And Campbell was a tactical lawyer who credited the Holy Spirit with inspiring the Bible, but not necessarily too much else. Now, painting with a broad brush, Stone, Barton W. Stone placed a, a high emphasis on freedom in the pursuit of unity. That, that he wasn't necessarily trying to police exactly how everybody did church or exactly what everybody believed for the sake of coming together. Meanwhile, Alexander Campbell placed a high emphasis on a systematic, rational understanding of the laws God laid out for his church in the Bible. Those of you listening uh, would, are going, oh, now I know why Church of Christ sometimes call themselves Campbellites. Uh, those, those, two, those two kind of competing emphasis of freedom for the sake of unity and yet a, a systematic, rational understanding of here's what God said, so let's make sure we do it. Those two emphasis can complement each other at the start of a movement, which is exactly what happened. Because you need freedom and inclusion to help the movement grow. And by the way, the restoration movement grew so rapidly in its first decades that when I started doing a little research with this, I was astounded to read from restoration uh, historian Richard Hughes that by the year 1860, our movement was the fourth largest Christian group in the United States, trailing in membership only uh, to only Baptists, Methodists, and Presbyterians. But in order to steward that growth and shape a collection of churches into a sustainable movement, well, what happened is that they ended up relying on the systems and the rules and the answers, and that is where Alexander Campbell excelled. And so the end result was that Campbell's influence really carried the day with especially the churches of Christ. It was far greater than Barton W. Stone's. But some of where I want to spend our time today is, is I believe there's something to be learned when we rediscover the story of what happened before Barton W. Stone ever met Alexander Campbell. As I said, Stone was a Presbyterian minister. And he, he served for, well, for two different congre congregations outside Lexington, Kentucky. Concord and Cane Ridge, these two different churches. And in the year 1800, in 1801, there were these revivals sweeping across uh, Tennessee and Kentucky. And these reports were spreading around. The, re the revivals were often connected to communion services, which were often three to five day festivals with prayer, worship. There was, there was uh, usually Saturday was a day of kind of repentance and fasting in preparation for the Sunday communion feast where they'd have, you know, it w wasn't just that you took communion, but this was a big meal that, that the group would share together. And this would often draw more than just, just the typical church crowd, but, but a bigger group would come. But what was starting to happen at these communion feasts was that powerful things w seemed to be taking place. Strange, but yet awe-inspiring experiences. Stone heard about this. 
because these communion festivals were turning into revivals. And he traveled to see one for himself. And, and here's what he wrote from his, from his experience at one of these com communion feasts turned revivals. He writes, quote, The scene to me was new and passing strange. Many, very many fell down as men slain in battle and continued for hours together in an apparently breathless and motionless state. Sometimes, sometimes for a few moments, reviving and exhibiting symptoms of a life by a deep groan or piercing shriek or by a prayer for mercy most fervently uttered. With astonishment did I hear men, women, and children declaring the wonderful works of God. From what he had seen, God seemed to be on the move in a unique and powerful way. And inspired by this, he returned to, uh, to one of the, his congregations, the, the Cane Ridge. This is the picture of the Cane Ridge Meeting House, which you can still visit uh, in, uh, in season, which is spring and summer, uh, and some of early fall, uh, just 20 miles or so outside Lexington. Now, when you arrive there, there's actually a whole different structure built around this building to continue to preserve it. But there he was, and he, he, with the congregation, scheduled their own communion festival. That that would happen in August of 1801. Now at that point, when that was scheduled, word had gotten around to many in the region about what was going on at these communion feasts. And people were hearing about this miraculous, apparent these miraculous and apparent manifestations of God's power. And whether it was out of earnest desire to encounter God or out of a spectator's curiosity, people showed up to Cane Ridge in droves. In fact, in thousands. Uh, some estimates from, uh, from historians reach as high as 20,000 people who, who descended on this little town. And at this massive gathering, there, there was once again a peculiar and powerful atmosphere of religious fervor. These powerful manifestations Stone had seen in other places started happening among the tens of thousands who had gathered in the community around his own church, but with crowds so large that the scene is often described as chaotic. When I was researching this, one, one, one uh, scholar said that, that because of how many people were there and how much was written about it, that you could argue that Cain, the Cane Ridge, what later was called the Cane Ridge Revival, was one of the most well-documented things in early American history. And, and so there were, you can just picture this scene where you've got, you've got this, this, this score of tens of thousands, you know, 20,000 people at different points surging in different places, and then these preachers are just popping up. And so there's different sermons happening all around while all of a sudden there are these hysterical and emotional reactions from people in the crowd, others who fall out slain and, and some portions of the crowd look almost like a battlefield of just all kinds of bodies down who seem to be slain in the spirit. There was singing and groaning and all of this in a town that was ill prepared to host a five figure assembly. And this revival lasted well past the Sunday when communion was taken, but not unlike uh, the recent uh, As Asbury outpouring, there was a continuation for several days and even all night prayer and all kinds of things that took place until finally uh, it finished. And, and, and later, I love what one historian said, later for all the other types of meetings like this, the prayer in preparation 
was, Lord, let it be like Cambridge. That this became this mark, not just for our movement, but, but in American Christianity. Some of the historians argued this was perhaps the most important religious gathering in American Christianity, certainly in early American Christianity. And at the same time, there is a kind of irony to me in the fact that a seminal moment for one of the founders of our movement was a spirit-led signs and wonders event reportedly so chaotic that it might have defined the very opposite of decently and in order. But something formative happened for Barton W. Stone, not only there at Cambridge, but in the years that followed. And in 1802, Stone and a few others left the Presbyterian Synod and organized the Springfield Presbytery, uh, uh, Presbytery their, their own kind of, kind of iteration of uh, Presbyterian faith. But this, this new organization, Springfield, was short-lived because Stone and, and his contemporaries became convinced that there was something better to aim for, not a purer denominational expression but no denomination whatsoever. And in 1804, they published the last will and testament of the Springfield Presbytery. This was Stone's spiritual Rubicon. Stepping out of denominationalism altogether to pursue unity among God's people and invite God's kingdom reign into every believer's daily life. I want you to listen to just, just, just two, two short ex excerpts from the last will and testament. We will that this body die, be dissolved, and sink into union with the body of Christ at large. We will that our weak brethren, who may have been wishing to make the Presbytery of Springfield their king, and what not what is now become of it, betake themselves to the rock of ages and follow Jesus for the future. And so this former Presbyterian, Barton W. Stone, began to do just that, insisting that he would, own, he would be a Christian and a Christian only. And in Stone's framework, he, 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 be, he had this, this passion, this pursuit, not only of allowing some level of freedom for the sake of uniting different strands and pieces of the body of Christ together as would as it would be in the kingdom of God eventually but he also had this mindset of trying to understand what were the means and modes of pursuing Christian unity today and so he he started to kind of he framed this a few different ways and had kind of four different forms of union the first is what he called head union. Now, this was Stone's way of describing confessional creeds. You know, the kind of, kind of groups that boil their theology down into a, a few key issues or convictions. And, and most cynically, trying to think, you know, from may, perhaps from Stone's perspective, but even just from the perspective, uh, you, could, you could look at creeds, and this is a cynical read, but if you're being critical of it, you could look at creeds as a way of saying to Christians, hey, there's some important people who have already studied all of this uh, through all of this for you. So you just agree with our creeds and doctrinal statements and we can have unity and you can belong. Now, this 
the creedal confessions uh, certainly have their benefit. But for the purposes of our conversation, from Stone's lens, this had caused and continues to cause division many times over. So for Stone, head union was never a sustainable or viable option for a means of lasting unity of the church. So another option, this might sound familiar to us, is book union, a form of unity based on the authority of the word of God. And all the good Church of Christers go, yep, that's what it is right there. After all, we're people of the book. So isn't that what's, what's going to bind us together? This is how God has spoken. This was the Holy Spirit's big job to inspire this thing so we could have it all in clear and plain reading. Well, yes and no. See, Stone actually strongly argued for a level of freedom regarding the Bible itself. Now, by that, I mean he maintained completely the Bible's inspiration and its authority. But his pushback against denominations included him advocating for the freedom for all Christians to read and understand the Bible for themselves apart from any official denominational interpretation. So Stone, he didn't buy into the idea that if we can just if we can just all kind of get forget the creedal head union, we're going to get our heads around the book. And then when we get our heads around the book, we'll just agree about what the book says. And now the problem is now we're not agreeing on what the Bible says. We're agreeing on our interpretation of the Bible. And that takes us all the way back to the problems with head union. So next Stone made reference to something else that will sound familiar. Water union. So this is about baptism, its form and its application. So if we could just baptize believers by immersion, if we can all agree that baptism is an essential act and that it must be done a certain way, that it has a, a, an agreed upon list of effects that are that are mentioned in God's word, then we can be united. And the emphasis on baptism by immersion is a defining characteristic of a, 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 a lot of our movement. It was only later, this is not Stone's originating concept, uh, or, or actually, and, and, and others in the, in, of the earliest part of the movement, it wasn't their originating concept to really pursue water union as the most important, as we'll see in a moment. But some took this whole concept of, of water union, and when you do some spiritual alchemy, and you take, hey, you gotta be baptized, and you, you kind of do some spiritual alchemy with we're the one true, true church, so you gotta be with us, then if you take that, kind of meld those things together and take them to their furthest conclusion, as some did later in our movement, you end up with situations that result in, in believers who are baptized, but they were baptized in a Baptist church, needing to be rebaptized inside of a building that says Church of Christ on it so that they can place membership at a Church of Christ. I wish that was a joke, but you know it's not. And so, to this attempt for the basis of unity, Stone said water's not going to do the job. Instead, he asserted that there's really only one basis for lasting sustainable unity among God's people. What he called fire union. This was for Stone Pentecost style. That the mark of unity among believers 
won't be creeds or, or just that they acknowledge biblical authority or that they've been baptized in a certain way, but that the mark of unity will be the presence and active work of God's very spirit. That not unlike the Old Testament plea from Moses, that what else is going to set us apart except God, that your presence is with us us in stone's mind the unity of the church would only come in part because everyone who was unified was filled with the spirit of god now the 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 good church of christ can reverse engineer that and go well yeah that's fine because you have to be baptized in order to receive the gift of the holy spirit and you 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 know you can do your your kind of jump through your hoops to be able to feel comfortable with this mode but stone did not care about anybody else's comfort with this He cared about the active and present work of the Holy Spirit in people's lives today and understood this is God's empowering presence in daily life. After all, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, it's only by the Spirit that anyone can say Jesus is Lord. Jesus himself told us to abide in him with the guidance of the helper, the advocate that would come after him. Who would, who would lead us and, and live in us, dwell in us, and our means of abiding in Christ would actually come through the, the Spirit. Now, Stone plays on Jesus' vine and branch analogy when he wrote these words. How vain are all human attempts to unite a bundle of twigs together so as to make them grow together and bear fruit. They must First, be united with the living stock and receive its sap and spirit before they can ever be united with each other. So must we be first united with Christ and receive his spirit before we can ever be in spirit united with one another. The members of the body cannot live unless by union with the head. Nor can the members of the church be united unless first united with Christ a living head. His spirit is the bond of union. Men have devised many plans to unite Christians. All are vain. If there is but one effectual plan, which is that all be united with Christ and walk in him. This was his conviction. This was what Stone advocated for, lived for. This is, this is why he was, he was somebody who in many ways had this spirit of, I want to be as inclusive as possible for those who would see and understand that someday there will be no denominational divisions. And so in Stone's mind, some of the, the seeds of the restoration movement were, were found in this idea of living today and shaping your life like the kingdom of God that is coming had already arrived. This, this, was, uh, this was just the, the way, and this was, this was something that I, I didn't realize was, was kind of in a little bit of the secret sauce of how he was a follower of Jesus and how he led and what he modeled. That in his mind, and now he took this to some radical extremes. For instance, Barton W. Stone had this mindset around the kingdom of God and this idea that since I have the spirit with me and someday the kingdom of God will be here, then I, I am, I'm not going to be involved. I'm going to keep a, a distance from the kingdom of men, something that we wouldn't recognize in our movement. 
necessarily. But early on, he said, I'm not going to vote. I'm not going to be involved in government. He took this radical stance. And at the same time, was inclusive of and welcoming at table people who believed differently than him, baptized differently than him, taught differently than him, because he recognized in them, despite their differences, the presence of God's spirit that were leading these people to earnest and true faith in Jesus Christ. And it, and it is this mindset, this mode that I believe is going to be so critical for the next generation. Now, why, why do I say that? Well, in part, because when I grew up, I had to think about kind of what, what, what with that being some of the seeds of our Stone Campbell movement. And then I think about how, how I grew up. And I think, I think to say it uh, as honoringly as possible, that uh, the Holy Spirit was more in our song lyrics than in our sermons. I, I think about there was a season, and, and you know, I, I grew up as a preacher's kid, and so I've been, uh, I've been referenced and inside of a lot of messages, uh, whether I wanted to be or not, and it's just such a joy to return that favor to my father for a moment. So there, uh, my, my dad, uh, every now and then, he would just grab onto certain songs, and, uh, and our song leaders at church would joke that they knew even if it wasn't on the list that morning, they might get thrown that song at the end of the message that he'd say in front of the whole church. All right, well, we're going to sing. And, and he had different kind of seasons. But one of his longest seasons with one particular uh, song uh, was, um, oh, man, and now I'm, uh, oh, Shine, Jesus, Shine. That was one that uh, we, had a, we had a worship, uh, worship leader, just such a great, great guy, Chuck Jones. Uh, at one of our churches, and, and for years, like Chuck would joke, he was like, I am so sick of singing Shine, Jesus, Shine, because he'd get thrown that song over and over, and, and I remember singing some of that chorus, Shine, Jesus, Shine, fill this land with the Father's, and here it comes, Blaze, Spirit, Blaze, set our hearts on fire oh man when when i'm i'm hearing that as a kid and i'm like what does that mean and unless we had a particular sermon because we were in the book of acts and you know we, we we needed to we needed to teach and preach pentecost so we could get to 248 uh 238 and so it was it was kind of one of those like unless we were there i didn't hear or understand much about what that meant now we sang it but we didn't always study it. And I would say we certainly the way that it was uh, caught for me growing up was that we didn't necessarily operate in it. Now, now to honor not only my dad, but but uh, uh, church leaders in our movement around uh, around around our movement. Uh, you know, I look back and, and the facts of the matter are my dad. I look back and there, there were series on walking with the spirit, being in step with the spirit, the fruits of the spirit. So the spirit was there. But in terms of understanding who the Spirit was, comfort and confidence in the Spirit's activity, well, that wasn't something that I caught. When I think about this more recently, I, I think about a buddy of mine named Dave. Uh, Dave and I grew up in, in youth groups that weren't far away from each other, and so we had these regional activities we do together, and so we were friends. And now he's, he's uh, uh, in ministry uh, minister in, in Nashville, and, and we still keep up. And he, he works a lot. You know, Nashville's got all kinds of, uh, besides just Lipscomb, tons of college students there. And so he works with a lot of college students at his church. 
And he told me a story that's been stuck in my mind ever since, from just a few years ago. Dave was in front of a large group of college students, and he asked them to raise their hands if they thought, this was a group of Christian college students, if they thought that Satan still speaks today. If he, as the deceiver, was lying to people, and even to them in that room, up to this very day. And the vast majority of hands shot up. And then, after they put their hands down, Dave asked the room if they thought God still actively spoke today. Was he bringing truth to people's hearts? And in that room, far fewer hands came up. The answer was just so much more hesitant. I was heartbroken when I heard that, but then Dave asked this haunting question. Are we raising a generation that thinks Satan is a better present-day communicator than God? When I look at the legacy of Barton W. Stone, I desperately want my kids to know that God still speaks today through his Holy Spirit. That, that what, what the Holy Spirit speaks to us is always in alignment with God's word, with the word the Spirit inspired, but it is not exclusively through his word. I want them to learn to listen for God's voice. I want them to expect that God might communicate with them both through his word and in their daily lives and in their brothers and sisters, in and through their brothers and sisters in Christ who are also filled with the same spirit. And I never want them to think that pursuing greater communion with the Holy Spirit is a rejection of the faith they inherited. And honestly, like that's, if I'm just being real, nobody ever put that on me. But having grown up in our wonderful tribe that I have so many wonderful memories of, a love for, a sense of home among I have felt that sense of, am I pushing back and rejecting what I've been handed? As I've tried to grow over the last few years in my relation, last several years in the, my relationship with the Holy Spirit. I mean, Titus 3 might say that we are washed and renewed by the Spirit. But as I explored more about the Holy Spirit's role and work in my life, I felt more like I was wading into forbidden waters. Because one, one of the stories up my personal family tree is uh, a moment when, when my dad overheard uh, my, my grandfather, who I, sh- I shared his, the story of his call yesterday, talking with, uh, talking with my, my grandmother and mentioning somebody that they knew in ministry. And, and, uh, and T.J. Walling, my, my grandfather, said, mm, yeah, I went off the deep end. And Mildred said, really? And he said, yeah, Holy Spirit. And that, I mean, I, I heard those kind of comments growing up around, around my, my, uh, my grandmother. And, uh, and now, you know, I, uh, I'll, I'll borrow, borrow the line uh, from my dad that now if I could think of any deep end I would want to go into, it is with God's very Holy Spirit present with me today. But, but I think the reason that I felt that sense of am I pushing back against the very ha- faith that's been handed to me wasn't because anybody put that on me. 
but was because our movement has long preferred Campbell's clean answers and cessationist position over Stone's views that the Holy Spirit still speaks and works in miraculous ways today. But if our kids and grandkids are going to meet their cultural moment, let, let's, just, let's just look for, for, for a moment at the trends of what other brothers and sisters in Christ they're most likely to be around in the years ahead. The Pentecostal movement has been described as the fastest growing religious movement in the world. That's from a book that came out, uh, I believe, in uh, 2022. Current estimates are that out of 2 billion Christians in the world, some 600 million of them are Pentecostal Christians. And according to some accounts, 35,000 people around the world join the Pentecostal movement a day. This tells me that while the legacy of Stone has, has in many ways been forgotten, it may still have a place in our future. Because the next generation will not only need to be people of restoration, but people of Christian collaboration. Because it's certainly, certainly in, in, our, in our country, if, 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 the, if the, the congregations are getting smaller and if Christians, regardless of what their tribe or denomination is, are in some ways beginning to be pushed back against and perhaps in the decades ahead more mar marginalized than before. All that's under the banner of God's will. We, won't, we don't know for sure. But if some of that is the case, we're going to need to be able to collaborate, worship, worship with, partner alongside in service and, and, and care to others, those Christians who have a much greater comfort with the Holy Spirit than us. And they will need, I believe, my kids, the next generation of this movement will need to be people of unity forged by the Holy Spirit's fire. Now, I recognize that depending on how you grew up, this might make somebody uncomfortable. So let me be clear. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that all of our kids need to become Pentecostal in order to survive as followers of Jesus in their day and age. But I am saying that learning greater confidence and dependence on God's spirit will help them both personally in their walk with Jesus and interpersonally with Christians from other corners of the kingdom. And it will help them empathize with root for and see as equal citizens in God's kingdom a global movement of Christians. Pentecostalism is not a, just an American movement. I mean, man, when you look when you look at the global south, the numbers are staggering. We're talking about we're talking about a global movement. And that was how Barton Stone operated, anticipating a day when there would be no denominations because God's kingdom would fully reign on earth. And so he made friendships and ministry connections with people from lots of Christian background, backgrounds. And here's what blew me away. I was reading some of, some of his, his writings, uh, and he, he had a, a recurring publication, and, um, and, uh, and, and man, when, he, when he would write, he had these reports on revival. But when he, when he would report on them, he would actually celebrate baptisms or revivals that were in other movements. Just picture this. Picture that one of your elders got up and announced the number of baptisms that happened at the Baptist church down the street so everybody could cheer in the room. I mean, that, that was a picture of what he was doing early on, that he was going, if you're with Jesus and his spirit is in you, I'm with you. I'm for you. 
I'm rooting for you. We don't have to agree on everything, but man, if, if you are with Jesus and his spirit is alive in you, then I'm with you and I'm for you and you're my brother or sister. Now that's, that's not necessarily how we've rolled, but that was Stone's mindset. And so, so to, to close, when, when we're talking about trying to pursue unity in God's kingdom, I think it's helpful to get our bearings around what other groups we're trying to live in harmony with. Now, in the spirit of stone, I'm going to keep this conversation non-denominational. And by that, I'm, I'm going to still include denominations in it, but we'll use some different names. So we're, we're going to broadly describe three teams in the church. And what I'm about to share with you is not original to me. Um, but uh, but it was something that when when I saw when I saw somebody present, I researched online and cannot find kind of the original originating author or where this started. But let me show let me show you kind of the, the the teams in the kingdom right now, broadly speaking. The first is what we'll call the theological team. Now, these are, you know, the, the Lutherans, Presbyterians, Reformed brothers and sisters you know, if, if, if just by chance, if anybody happened to grow up in, in, uh, in on, on the theological team, just, just raise your hand. Actually, never mind. You guys don't raise your hand in church. Uh, I'm just kidding. All love. Uh, the, the strength of the theological team is that this team absolutely loves and is dedicated to the word of God and the study of God's word. They're dedicated to deep study of the Bible and having the mind of Christ. This team loves theology and expositional preaching they have a very academic approach in so many ways and admittedly as a preacher i'm very grateful for this team because many of the resources that that i and many other preachers use are coming from this team the commentaries and the books the the insights the cultural understandings these are all amazing gifts to the bride of christ one potential weakness of this team though is that Sometimes this team can get so focused on getting the gospel right that they struggle to get the gospel out and just reach lost people for Jesus. That is a potential weakness for this team. But there's another team, and we are going to call this the charismatic team. These are our Pentecostal churches, our Assemblies of God, Vineyard Movement folks, that kind of thing. Ra raise your hand just by chance if anybody was part of this movement. In fact, you would raise both hands because that's what you guys do in church Actually, uh, now the strength of this team is that they love the Spirit of God. They believe in and seek encounters with God through worship. They anticipate each day that God's Spirit is at work in their lives to lead them, to correct them, to, to give them peace. But one potential weakness for this team is that this team sometimes will seek spiritual experience at the expense of deep spiritual and biblical truth. They want Jesus to move today by the Spirit, but sometimes fail to develop the mind of Christ or study God's Word well. Now there's one more team. I'm going to call this team the missional team. This would be a team made up of uh, broadly kind of Southern Baptist, non-denominational churches, community churches. Uh, you know, it's a team that that uh, in recent years has been highly influenced by different church leaders like Rick Warren or Andy Stanley. And and in some ways, you know, this is a team <laughs> to blame if we're going to tease all the teams and be equal of opportunity offenders. This is the team probably to blame for all of the LEDs and moving lights that are in a lot of churches around uh, around the world. 
But they are, the strength of this team is that they love the mission of God. They love evangelism. They are all about reaching their communities, evangelizing their neighbors. They, they emphasize church growth, multiplication, baptisms, church planting. And I have been highly influenced by these kinds of churches. Now, the potential weakness for this team is that they can focus so much on making more disciples that they struggle to make better disciples, to actually nurture and mature the people who are already in their churches. So when we think of these teams, not as three separate kind of, kind of groups, but as three interconnected parts of God's global family, Here's where I, I would say that the churches of Christ have been for a long time. In that mix of being, being passionate about God's word and passionate about evangelism. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, can, I, I can just think about us being people of the book and how that fits with our, our sort of theological background, our institutions, and how there was this, this Campbellite stream of this desire for, and Pepperdine's a great example of this, of, of academic excellence and and. And yet, at the same time, this great passion for seeing people come to faith and be baptized. But for the next generation, my prayer, my hope, that a picture of how they carry the restoration movement forward in their hearts, in their lives, in their churches, is that they'd find themselves here. My prayer for the next generation is that they would be a church who loves the word of God, is sold out for the mission of God, and pursues this by the power of God's spirit. That in this way, they, they would be prepared not to let one of these particular uh, values dominate how they structure, how they budget, how they think about what it means to be the church, but being positioned in this place, they'd have opportunity to welcome, affirm, connect with people from all different teams and streams of the kingdom of God around the world. And in this way, dependent on God's spirit. Well, as we close, this is, this is the place I want to pray from. thinking about my kids thinking about the the people that yesterday we we prayed and you had in mind the young people that when you see the title saw the title of this class you thought about them and i think man setting aside the controversial questionable maybe some restoration movement baggage related to the holy spirit there are clear indications that it is by God's very spirit that we experience and continue to feel the very theme of this week. That most personally, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I don't have it on the screen, but when you continue reading, I just noticed this beautiful connection. Paul continues, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
And when I think about that last part of that passage and this portion, that God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And in some ways, in some beautiful way, it's as if the Holy Spirit continues to apply the reality that God, while we were still sinners, died for us. That the means by which the Spirit continues to pour God's love into our heart isn't just that we're some kind of, our souls are not just some kind of like, like spiritual vessel that's just ready to receive more of God's love, but that God applies to our hearts, our souls, this beautiful truth of what Jesus has done for us. And in that renews our sense that we are beloved, that he really saw us at our worst and chose us anyway. That, that, he, that he knew who we were and how we would reject him and he would still go to the cross for us. And it is the spirit that echoes that message. message. It is the spirit that tells us later in Romans, it's the spirit by whom we cry, Abba, Father. It's the spirit of adoption that helps us know we belong. It is the spirit of renewal from Titus 3. It is this spirit poured into our hearts. God's love leading us helping us, reminding us to abide in Christ because in him, filled with his spirit, we can have unity with brothers and sisters who may know nothing of our movement but know the global story. So let's pray together. God, I ask in your mercy and grace that even now, that you would help us in some, some personal way. Sense, feel, remember, and receive your love. Oh, Holy Spirit, we, we, uh, yeah, we, we just see this, this, this verse that you are the means by which this love is poured into our hearts that we receive it. And so, and so we thank you. We thank you, God, for your spirit. God, I thank you for the next generation. And I pray that they would come to know faith in Jesus Christ. I pray that they would see the reality of the rest of this passage, that while they were still sinners, you looked at them and you loved them, you died for them, you rose for them. And as they come to faith in you and are filled with your spirit, you, Jesus, are still interceding for them. And for everybody listening to the sound of my voice, concerned, caring, praying for the next generation, for a moment, just recognize Jesus is praying for them too. Jesus is interceding even on your heart's behalf for those people that you love. So God, we, we ask um, that as you do, you do this work in us, that you'd also do it through us for how we love the next generation. How we share more of the story of God and his people in, in personal ways, in ways tied to our movement, 
most importantly in ways tied to the story of you redeeming the world and of your people right now bringing and living into the kingdom of God that is here and yet to be fully come. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus. And until then, keep us abiding in you and relying on your spirit. And it's in the powerful name of Jesus we pray. Amen. God bless. Thank you so much for being here.